With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Cosmic Geppetto Podcast is brought to you by MuseGuitarist.com. For help creating your own amazing music, from advice, production, or awesome guitar work, Contact Brad Hewitt at admin at museguitarist.com or visit www.museguitarist.com. From Geppetto Studios in New Freedom, Pennsylvania, welcome to the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Your home for inclusive, positive geek culture, where we talk about movies, comics, music, books, and whatever else we feel like. Please welcome your host. Physically a god in every way that mattered and probably a whole bunch of ways you want to find out. Brad Mendenhall. Hey everybody. It is a flashy episode of the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. The Answer Man, Thaddeus House, returns to talk about the possibility of another Superman TV show. But first, Eric and Molly from Escape from New York Minute got a special interview with author and sound editor Nicholas James, and they were nice enough to share their conversation. Call me Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And on today's episode, we are joined by another one of our special guests for a bonus episode. He's spent more than 40 years in the business as an expert on creating the sounds we hear when we watch movies and TV shows as a sound editor, sound effects editor, dialogue editor, Foley editor, and ADR editor. The projects he's worked on include Gremlins, G.I. Joe, Muppet Babies, Transformers the Movie, the Transformers TV show... My Little Pony, Field of Dreams, Terminator 2, Total Recall, Baywatch, Natural Born Killers, and Independence Day. But most of all, considering our podcast, he was the Foley editor on Escape from New York. We welcome Nick James to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us, Nick. Uh, So uh, just to make sure our listeners understand, uh, the Foley Mm -hmm. sound is the background noises that you hear in real life that are difficult to capture when filming, and so uh, you go on a soundstage and you recreate them using interesting methods for us to hear those sounds in movies and TV shows, yeah, correct? Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, mainly Foley is footsteps, but there are also, they also are used 
as sound effects to accompany and sweeten, that's a term, an old term in sound editorial, the other main effects that are being used. For example, someone might throw something on a bed and there, there would be a sound effect that is recorded and cut directly for that. And then the Foley people would uh, maybe add the sound of a spring to it or, or some other side effect like that. So as you mentioned, uh, the main aspect of Foley is walking. And in Escape yes. from New York, we've talked about how Sean Carpenter liked to keep the streets wet for a certain kind of look on the camera. I'm assuming that means that when you had to create the walking sounds for this movie, there maybe had to be a bit of a wetness to the walking. But was that the case? And if so, did that present any anything different from a usual walking sound you might have to create? No. Well, I mean, the only difference would simply be that uh, there would be pavement with water on it. In the Foley stage, there are uh, so you make a selection of many different surfaces. You can walk on wood, uh, sand, dirt, tile, carpet, and um, concrete, for example. So there's, there's nothing more in that case than just putting water onto the concrete. I had a very selfish question to ask because I love the Duke's car. And one of the things that I always loved about, and I'm thinking especially of a scene where uh, he's he's chasing Snake across uh, the 69th Street Bridge, and you can hear the tinkle of the chandeliers on the car. And I was wondering if you can recall uh, what produced that sound in actuality. Um, that was not something that I remember arguing. So it must have been done by the sound editor from mm. a, maybe a sound effects library or sometimes sound editors just individually record effects rather than sending them to the Foley stage. Mm. Interesting. So uh, talk us through what you did once they gave you the sound that the Foley artist created. Well, it's really very simple. Um, we were working on movieolas in those days, or it was film, and um, we would be given X number of tracks, anywhere from three or four to 15 of uh, footsteps and then props. And we would cut these on the movieola and, and sync them up with the action. That's really all there was to it. I was kind of curious about how you got started in sound, because you've got a, I mean, an expansive career, and you've done several different aspects of sound you know, production. I was just kind of curious what, your, you know, what led you oh. into this work initially. Well, my father was a sound editor at MGM from oh. 44 to 74. He helped me get into the union, and... Once I was in the union, uh, it was easier to get jobs. In those days, there was not such a broad openness to people becoming editors, photographers, cinematographers. There, you really had to go through the you had to be in the union first. It was kind of a catch twenty two because you couldn't get higher than a union film unless you were in the union, and you couldn't get in the union 
unless you were working on a union film. <laughs> so the, the way I got in was um, actually interesting and unusual. Um, my father, by the time that um, I was an adult, my father was unable to get me in just because I was his son. At that point, it was the producer and directors who were still able to use that nepotism. So what my father did was bring in a friend of his who had a uh, cousin that was a member of one of the five families in New York, mafia families, and he said to the then head of the editor's union, he says, uh, my friend Van hasn't been able to get his Nick, his son Nick into the guild. And the man responded, the man who would never talk to me on the phone, he said, oh my God, well, he's in. <laughs> that's and that's not usually how people get in. There is something called there is something else, uh, I, forgot that, I forgot what it was called, but it was something that was set up by the um, motion picture, uh, not Academy, it was uh, something that Jack Valenti was heading, and they had a rule come through uh, a government um, bill that said Anyone who was working for 30 days on any picture, union or non-union, could then uh, apply and be accepted in the union. And that's the way that most of the people of my generation got in. Mm. So then, um, and we'll, we'll get into some of the other sound jobs that you've had in your career, but uh, sticking with Foley editing for now, does the Foley editor interact with the director of the picture? Do you only interact with other sound people on the picture? What is the relationship with the Foley editor with well, the rest of the crew? Uh, the Foley editor usually only talks to the Foley supervisor. Mm. Um, and the know. Foley supervisor, which have also been in some movies, uh, will talk to the director and be on the soundstage when they're re-recording it. So there'll be a direct uh, communication between what the director wants and what the Foley editing crew does. How long does it take for just like in an average movie to for Foley work to perform? Is it just is it one day in a studio, or or can it can it take longer than that? It's not one day. Some people might try to do it in one day, but it's it's not a very good job. Even with the advance in technology that we have. I would say that a cheap film would take about four days to do the Foley in. Okay. And, and at the time that I was working, it would be more like um, two or three weeks that uh, there would, the Foley stage would be operating. In one instance, though, I was a Foley supervisor in on the... Um, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, and that was very unusual. I, the Foley stage was operating for seven months. Wow. Because that's because Paul 
decided he disliked something after we had done everything and we had to do it all over again. And he had a lot of power then, so the studio wasn't holding his demands down. And it, it, it was uh, considered some kind of a joke of the industry. Nobody ever had that long on a Foley stage. And um, that's just a way of saying that on big studio films, uh, the sound post sound production budget can crawl up to over a million dollars, which seems sort of absurd, incomprehensible when you think about it. But it was like that on studio pictures back then. So when a Foley artist is on the soundstage creating the sounds, are they actually walking back and forth? Are they walking in place? Talk us through uh, how a Foley oh, artist well, do that. They're walking, they're walking in place. The surfaces that they walk on are not that, um, they're not that big. So really, mm-hmm. they, and, and the mic, you know, wouldn't pick up the sound of the footstep getting out of the range of the reception. So yeah, they are, they are walking in place. And then in addition to these surfaces, they have a, um, a large collection of virtually anything you can imagine in their, on their stage that they use to simulate different effects. Often used are things like car fenders that might be used for any impact of any kind of metal. They have, they run water, they have a spray to create some small bit of rain. Virtually anything that the sound editor didn't do or wasn't asked to do. It's kind of fully, fully people kind of catch everything. They're the finishers. Hmm. Well, since we're talking a little bit about uh, the collaborative process here, I was just curious about what makes a successful creative collaboration for you working with others? That I like the people I'm working with. Mm. Um, it's really very simple. There are in the business, of course, um, extremely obnoxious uh, people, a lot of them, but <laughs> mostly it's, uh, from the producer's end. But then there are the prima donnas, even in sound editorial, who... Uh, think that they're the only ones who can manage a job well. So that that is the most important thing. If you if you're working with someone, you usually editors on a crew all get along with each other. Mm. Sometimes as a supervisor which is um being too demanding or unforgiving and not giving editors enough time or enough uh, explanation, but um, most most supervisors get along well with their crew. In the old days, before sound editors became mixers, um, the big battle was between the editors and the mixers. The mixers would ask for all kinds of things that 
the director never asked for, the director would then think, oh my God, I should have that. And then uh, the editors would be told, they would, they would not be asked to do it. They would usually be, set, they would be told, why didn't you do this? Mm. And you better do this now. Mm. Sound editing and is, is, of course, a below-the-line um, job. And so the attitude from, and I'm only speaking for the past, I don't know what it's like now, but the attitude coming from the uh, above-the-line talent of directors, producers, and picture editors uh, were something like the um, architects to the uh, ditch diggers. It wasn't pleasant. Mm. Let's move into a bit in your sound effects editing work. Uh, you worked on worked on some pretty major movies. Uh, a couple of Schwarzenegger movies first come to mind. You did the sound effects editing for both Total Recall and uh, a movie that is one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made, Terminator 2. Uh, and, and there's mm-hmm. some great sound stuff in Terminator 2. Uh, what any 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 interesting uh, things you can tell us about working on either one of those two movies? Terminator Two was uh, a job that I did not work on the main crew for. The main crew was um, in San Francisco. I was working with a group in Los Angeles, and we were doing a temp mix for. Um, the director, Jim Cameron. And so we were working within his office and facility and we had a lot of close contact with him. And, um, it was, that was one of my favorite jobs because they had no interest. They had no concern as Jim Cameron was so powerful. It made no difference to them that we worked 20 hours a day going into turnaround and overtime. Turnaround is when you come back after less than eight hours from the time you left, and then you get double the time in salary. Uh, You get double, double time in essence. Uh, So I enjoyed making a lot of money on that. I enjoyed (laughs) getting you know, I enjoyed getting to know Jim Cameron, and uh, um, it was nice because we worked closely with him. And we didn't, in that case, um, our so it's only a temp dub. Usually, the hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Sounds wouldn't be used, but Jim liked certain sounds like the, um, the snapping of the um, character who uh, was uh, made out of some metallic substance. The T-1000. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's one example. And the effects we did around 
around the breaking of his uh, body parts they used in the final mix. And then the other film you were talking about was Total Recall. Right. Yeah, Total Recall was probably the movie in which I had done what I think is my best work and worked on it for the longest time and created... I was a sound effects editor, but I also recorded a lot of sound for it and um i was on the stage even though i wasn't the supervisor uh i also knew the the producer and writer ron chusette i remember a sequence in which on mars arnold tries to come through customs in a mass of a oh, woman. sure. Very famous and, scene. And that, yeah, and that starts opening up. And then immediately after that, all the doors surrounding the port are closed. And um, that was a scene that was uh, lots of fun to cut and um, took quite a long time to accomplish. And another one was the uh, humming sound of the actual um, memory machine and uh that was very elaborate and i remembered on the stage jerry goldsmith who's a composer wrote something and um he wanted his music to be used without sound effects and i wanted the sound effects to be used without music and i and i i won i convinced <laughs> paul um so and and Jerry was very disgruntled, um, but that's that's rare. That's one of the that usually a composer has priority over anything done in sound. Hmm. I mean, similar to that is the story my father had. He was the co-supervisor of the 1959 William Wyler Best Best Ben Hur, and. Um, he would have received an Oscar were it not for the fact that MGM only allowed one person from the sound editing crew to be um, listed as the supervisor. And his co-supervisor had six months longer of seniority, so he got picked. But my father didn't succeed uh, with Miklos Rosa when he cut the whole scene that was um, in the ocean, in the Mediterranean, where the rowers were uh, rowing the boat and it was being rammed by another boat. And he told me that they had a hundred um, units uh, running simultaneously, which was a lot in 1959. And they had to have a hundred separate um, 35 millimeter sound reels running to do that effect. They couldn't really do pre-dubs the way that people have done since then. They had to have everything going at the same time. And so you've also worked uh, a lot on uh, TV animation and uh, my two biggest shows when I was growing up that I made sure to watch every day on the way home from school were G.I. Joe and the Transformers. 
and oh, yeah. uh, it's it's pretty awesome that you did the sound effects editing on those two shows because one of the things I loved about the shows was the sound effects, the laser guns and oh, the explosions really? and the planes. Uh, talk a bit about uh, work, working on those two shows. Well, I was working for Marvel for about a year and a half when I was doing those. There's not really anything more I can say except that we had a good sound effects library. Mm. When you're working in animation, the budget is low and you usually can't go out and record anything. So um, we used what we had, either what Marvel provided or what the individual individual editors had in their library. In that vein, uh, Brad, our producer, he, one of his favorite shows growing up was Defenders of the Earth, and um, he and I hosted before Escape from New York. Uh, Brad and I were co-hosts on Flash Gordon a minute, and he often talked uh-huh. about Defenders of the Earth because, of course, Flash Gordon was one of the main characters on there. To see if Brad wants to hop on here and uh, ask a question, Brad, you got any questions you wanted to ask about? Defenders of the Earth sound effects. Well, you know, it's um, thanks, a lot. And, and Mr. James. It's really interesting because it sounds like I, I'm more in gen- just general. It sort of sounds like what you're saying is when you're doing the animation stuff, you got to do it sort of uh, quick and sloppy, and it's really impressive that you're able to come up with such great sound. Because uh, I agree with Eric, uh, what made Transformers and GI Joe and Defenders of the Earth so interesting mm-hmm. was. Uh, the sound always worked. So uh, mm-hmm. was it like really challenging to do that on a sh- compared to the shooting budget as opposed to movies? Or was it sort of fun that you could sort of, was there a sort of a more wild West feel to doing the animation? Well, I wouldn't say there was a wild West feel to doing the animation. It was um, pretty straightforward. Also, I wanted to add, that the fact that there was no dialogue editing to be done, since everything was re-recorded, of course, in animation, that made our work all the much easier. And like I said before, the fact that the sound libraries had effects that had been mixed down and pre-dubbed and made for shows that came before we started working on the animated TV shows that we did so that, um, again, it was uh, luck that we just had editors and libraries that could produce, you know, cut in good, good sound effects. I don't know the source of most of those sound effects, but except to say that editors always have their own sound libraries and, um, since sound, as far as I know, is not considered intellectual property, a lot of the sounds that we use came from other movies. When an editor would work on a movie and create a good sound effect, he would just keep it in his own library and then use it again in some other film. <laughs> That's sort of how, and so sometimes he gets famous and you get the Wilhelm scream uh, from something like that, I would imagine. <laughs> oh, yeah, except I. We don't, none of us used the Wilhelm screen. <laughs> you know, there are certain effects that we are are too recognizable, <laughs> too cliche. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I was kind of curious because 
obviously you've been in the business quite a long time and there's been, I'm sure, uh, a plethora of technological changes that you've witnessed. And I was kind of curious about how your job has changed with the technology over time and to what benefit has it been to you? Well, it changed enormously from film to digital. And as far as my personal experience in it, I would say that it had something to do with my retiring early because mm. I didn't, I was never a mixer and I didn't learn the business when these new digital systems came into existence. I worked on them for several years and I did some good work on them, but by and large, what happened in about 20 years ago was that new server supervisors came in that were doing a lot of pre-dubs on their equipment, um, such as the Pro Tools, for example, and they had so much control over it that they had to be put in the mixing stage in order to make it work with... Um, the music and the dialogue. This was to the initial horror of the the mixers, this motion picture mixers, but it was an inevitability. And uh, I was before that time, so I didn't know all of the uh, skills that the new digital editors knew. Another thing that's changed uh, since I started working and when my father was working in, in sound editorial is that um, the sound editor went from the position of being like a plumber on a project to becoming an architect. Mm. Sound uh, became so much bigger and um, versatile and there's the introduction of the the 5.1 systems mm. that um, really for a lot of people replaced what we were doing and there were degrees that people had sound editorial degrees from film schools, which uh, would seem, they were non-existent when we went to school. And uh, everybody that became a sound editor in my time was a sound editor because they couldn't get a job being a picture editor. So that um, it was, it got to the point when it was changing that some of us, I mean, uh, one of the supervisors I was working for said he got a letter from a young woman who said that she's so impressed and so excited about his sound effects that, that she decided to make this her life's career, to which um, the supervisor just laughed. You know, I can't believe this, you know, that someone would want to be a sound editor, <laughs> but it's you know, it's changed, obviously, since then. 
another credit that's listed on our IMDb page uh, that I've seen you've done a few times. I'd say maybe the movie most that's most famous that you've done this on is Field of Dreams is a dialogue editor. Can you tell us what a dialogue editor does? Yeah, a dialogue editor has the most difficult job in sound editorial because what you have to do is take selections made by the picture editor and the director of lines that were done during different takes so that every time the camera was reset up, you were shooting it from a different angle and often the ambience in the background would be a very startling jump. So the dialogue editor's job was to make a absolutely clean segue between one setup and another setup. And it required making a lot of, making more than one background fill track that was just the sound of the room, uh, which these things were difficult to make because you had to take a particular take from a scene and cut out all of the noise and all of the dialogue and all of the direction until you came up with a relatively short uh, amount of um, of sound, maybe less than a, well, a minute would be a lot. I would say less than 15 seconds. And then you have to re-record that against itself with itself to try and cover up any reoccurring loop sound that you might have. It's the most time-consuming and the most difficult job in editing, I think. Your father was Van Allen James? Yes. I I took a quick glance at his IMDb page, and just to let everyone know, sound on on a, a lot of very famous movies, Soylent Green, The Dirty Dozen, North by Northwest... Dr. Jafago, Singing in the Rain, a whole bunch of Twilight Zone episodes. Of course, my favorite was Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. It's just one of my favorite movies, and I was excited that my father cut that. And uh, it turns out that his main job was to put in all of the tap steps that were done in the movie. Because, of course, when you're shooting a film, even when Gene Kelly was tap dancing, he he didn't have uh, very powerful taps on, or actually, more, more to the point, they didn't record his feet. They mm. recorded his singing and, uh, and dialogue so that the sound editor had to come in and match every single frame that had a metallic tap in it. Oof. Yeah, it's very time-consuming. Right, Molly, you want to uh, get in one last question? I actually kind of had a question about your writing. I'm wondering, because we have many different creatives who listen to our podcast, I'm wondering if you have any any advice for a writer. Keep doing it every day, and even though you hate doing it and you can't possibly come up with something that you think is good, you should still write anyway. Right now, writing is not easy for me, but I enjoy it. When I started writing when I was 18, it was torment. I locked myself in a room for two hours a day, 
and I wouldn't leave. And, and for those two hours, I could do whatever I wanted. So I ended up writing something. But um, writing is, when you start out, an extremely difficult task. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. I've never been able, never been able to figure that out. I suppose it has something to do with um, letting out your own inner world and putting it on paper. Well, what I discovered was we all think that we know what we are about and that we know our own thoughts and feelings. But when you come down to it and try and make it actual and physical and written, um, you discover that there's an endless number of blocks between your, your inner feelings and intentions of what you actually produce. The only advice I would give to anybody is what works for me, which is to uh, listen to music when you're mm. writing because that sets a mood and it sort of um, lets your mind wander off, wander off into yourself. Cool. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Nick, thank you so much for being willing to come on and chat with us today. We very much appreciate it. We're super grateful for your okay. time and your insights and talking about your, your very long career. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. And you can follow us on Twitter at NY Minute Pod. Also, we have a Facebook group, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And with that, okay. be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You want to believe the best in humanity, and it's a weird thing where people individually are great, and then every now and then you can get groups to surprise you pleasantly, but it's a, it's literally a surprise, because in general, when you get groupthink, it never goes to the best place, or rarely, very, very rarely.
That's been my thing is that generally when I look at an idea, you know, when people think that I sit down and I'm just sitting around sketching out terrible things uh, to talk about, you know, because I talk about a lot of terrible things. But it's not because I want to. It's because I sit and extrapolate based on what I've seen happening. And so when I write my short stories and they happen to touch reality, no one's more disturbed about it than me. Nobody. Because I know that what I'm seeing is true. I wrote an article on drones some years ago. Ultimately, society will use drones as weapons. Right now, we're talking about delivering pizzas. But let's face it. Once you can deliver a pizza, you can deliver a bullet or a bomb or an explosive. Oh, wait, we already have those. They're really big right now. We're talking about micro drones. So this this article, and matter of fact, I think it was an actual publication from a tech company that made a video and it talked about making smart swarms. So this company would have a truck roll up, open the back of the truck, and a bunch of swarm drones would fly out and they'd have like five minutes of flight time. And what they'd do is they'd fly to the target, drop down and shoot the target in the head. And I was like, oh my God, this is just like what I just finished writing. This is terrible. Am I a terrible person for seeing what other people are talking about or thinking about? Or am I just really in tune with the horror that is humanity? Honestly, I'm not sure which is more terrifying to me. You don't want to think like the bad people. I don't want to think like them. But unfortunately, I do seem cursed in that regard. You're just the warning. You're the person warning what could happen. I'm Cassandra. Yeah, I say this terrible thing is happening. And you know what happened to Cassandra, right? In the legends, Cassandra could always see the truth. But her curse was that no one would believe her. And funny. That's been the case with me, is that I will talk about these things for years and years and years, and no one believes me. And ironically, as a climate change uh, person, I've been writing about it for years, and now I'm watching it happen. And it's just so terrifying to watch. Like, yeah, I predicted this. Yep, I predicted this. Oh, I predicted this too. Oh, my God, I'm in trouble. All I see is the horror of my wor- or of my predictions. And I'm thinking, okay, so what do we do to fix it? Okay, let's hold a podcast. Let's talk about it. Yeah, that hasn't worked out so well. All you get is the pleasure of saying I told you so, and that isn't enough. No, there's no pleasure in that, brother. You know <laughs> Oh, that. I do. You know there's no pleasure in that. That's that's the nightmare. That, ironically, that is the nightmare. To be right, to know that you were right, to tell people for them to see that you are right, and yet nothing changed because you're not in a position high enough or well-established enough to say we should fix this. And how to. You were on my call. You know what that's like. Uh, The thought process that goes behind these things, we know why they don't get fixed. Problem is, we just don't know how to get people to recognize that and maybe take a stance in that regard To, to, to look at this and say, let's make this better because there's too many people that stand to make money from it. And I think that's the reason I have such a hard time because there's so many people making money on, on those terrible aspects of our society. And Nobody seems concerned about it when all is said and done. No one seems concerned at all. It's already too late for there to be no repercussions. Right. There's going to be repercussions pretty much for everything that's happening. So I give you that karma. That karmic example was the city council in Venice when they were voting. Oh, well, you know, we could do something about climate change or we could just ignore it. And they said, you know what? Let's ignore it. Ironically, the very same night that they left their office, it was flooded. When, when the tide uh, rose five feet, all of Venice is suddenly swamped underwater, and the office that they just voted from is now underwater. 
<laughs> that, that just seemed really fitting and weird and bizarre and unfortunate at the same time. That is instant karma. It usually takes a little longer. Instant karma. And it usually takes longer. But today we fast delivered you some karma, sir. So you guys all got to know exactly what it's going to look like if you don't do something. Usually it's a problem that doesn't affect them. You know how it is. I'm in charge of stuff. I live on a hill. I don't have to look down. You know, I don't have to worry about flooding. Well, today your office is underwater. What will you do now? As we are recording today, and I know you're aware of it uh, because you posted on your Facebook page, talk about how long it takes for karma to catch up. Today, 67-year-old Roger Stone was found guilty on all charges. Oh, yeah, that was brutal. And he's been a scumbag since the (laughs) Nixon administration. (laughs) Thank you. He's been running this joint for a long time. So, yeah, it has finally come home. And that was not instant karma. That was slow karma. Yeah, that's how it works. It's usually when they're on their last lap, all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, like the Harvey Weinstein, he's been a dirtbag for decades upon decades. It's so rare that justice finds these people like in the prime of their scumbaggery. It's always when they're like broken down old men, they've lost their power. They've lost, they've, they've run their game against everyone. And now finally they've lost their allies. In the last decade of their life, they now have to go to prison. So you look at Bernie Madoff as a fine example. He's been running roughshod over people for five decades. And then he ends up going to jail when he's, what, 60-something? Like, dude, you'll be in jail for a decade and then you're dead. But you've been a monster and you've harmed people all your life. How awful is it that now you're finally caught and people want to be like, oh, I have sympathy for him. I don't have sympathy for him. No. No sympathy for him. None. Let him go to jail. Let him spend his final days sitting in a jail cell, missing his filet mignon or whatever it is he used to do every day that he loved so much that he would do that rather than be decent to people. Do not feel a bit of sympathy for him. Not one second. He does not deserve it. It's the thing. I'll have sympathy for Bernie Madoff the second that everyone who he ripped off gets their money back. Gets their money back. Well, that's not going to happen. I guess we don't have to worry about sympathy then, do we? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. We do not have to worry about it. Not for a second. On to a lighter subject. Thaddeus, how are you doing, first off? I'm good, brother. I'm good. I, you know, I've been working on a bunch of projects. Uh, the, the things that I'm working on right now I'm, that I'm really enthralled with are going well. I have my first residency. I am now officially an artist, meaning I am getting paid as an artist to teach other artists. So I have, this is my first writer's residency. I have someone wanted to link their name to mine. And I'm so excited about that because I wanted to work with this company for a long time. Chapter 510, they're a uh, literacy group in Oakland where I live. They bring literacy to schools. They come to schools. They have literacy programs teaching kids to read and write and to imagine themselves uh, being creative and helping them achieve this goal. So I wanted to work with them for a long time, but I could never figure out how. So one day uh, when I joined this group called the Afro-Surreal Writers Group, joined slash created this group, we ran into another company that works with them called Nomadic Press. And Nomadic Press prints the books that the kids write. So this was a weird fusion of, of, of events because the Afro-Surreal Writers Group also knows Nomadic Press. So Nomadic Press has an office inside of Chapter 510's building. So we ended up meeting through this roundabout 
way. And I was like, wow, finally I get to meet somebody here. So we talked, but I could never find it. You know, there was a small place. They were, they were working purely on grants. So they don't have any, you know, barely have any money for full-time staff. So it was one of those things where it was like, yeah, I want to do this, but there's no money. So for a year or two, I like, couldn't do anything. But then last year, they were looking for mentors. Oh, I could be a mentor. And they were paying money. I was like, oh, mentoring and cash. Oh, this is even better. So for probably six, maybe eight weeks, we got together with the kids every weekend and we helped them write. We helped them write their books, talk about the creative process, build on what they'd been teaching, what they'd been learning from the teacher who was Tiffany Golden at the time. So I worked with her for that whole period. We ended up, there's some pictures on my website where, you know, there's me and the kids that I work with. And it was great. And it was a great thing. So this year, Tiffany says to me, uh, I can't do it. I have a, I'm doing my, my master's, my MFA, and I can't teach and, you know, teach and run my MFA and do a bunch of writing that I'm doing. So if you're interested, they're looking for a teacher. And I was like, oh, really? With that, I called them up. They said, we remember you from mentoring. You were great. Come down and interview. So I came down, I interviewed, and I became the writer in residency. And I was like, yes. So I was really thrilled with it because it does pay, which is always nice. But more importantly, it's my first residency. One of the things that I discovered as a, as a writing artist is that residencies are hard to come by. They are like hen's teeth. You will be digging for them. You will be hunting for them. They are very, you know, there's so many talented writers out here that you're competing against the entire planet of people who want to participate in the residencies that are out there. And there are never enough residencies and there are way too many artists. To finally have one and get one, I was like, yes, because when you get one, now you can get others because usually that's how it works. You won't get a residency until you get one and you won't get another one until you get your first. I'm thrilled with it. I'm enjoying it. I love working with the kids. They're fun. They're funny. They're silly. The classwork is challenging, but not too challenging. And I enjoy doing it. It is, it is one of the better things that I'm doing right now that I really enjoy. And I would do more of it if I could get paid for it. And that's what I'm looking for is other ways to get paid to teach writing. So I'm looking at doing some coaching, either as a private coach or running a teaching session, or I can teach two, maybe three, maybe two or three at the most. Or I teach two or three people how to write and how to work together to become better writers. And I think that's really the secret. If I can get that to happen, I think I could just be an artist and be a writer and be creative and work on my creative projects all day, all the time. And that would make me very happy. When you work with young writers, is there something that you see a lot of, like some bad habit, something that you see that just in general young writers need to overcome to get to that next level? Most young writers don't understand that writing isn't just a creative process. They look at writing and think, well, if I have a story idea, I'll just write it down. But it isn't just a creative process. Writing is a craft process. You have to know what goes underneath writing. Writing is like any other craft. If you were going to be a blacksmith, before you could craft a sword, you had to dig up the iron. You have to dig up the iron, you have to smelt the iron, you have to prepare the iron, you have to add carbon to the iron so that you can make steel. You have to know how to do these things in the right amounts, in the right ways, with the right amount of heat. You have to know how to build a forge. You have to have an anvil. You have to have hammers and nut tongs and all the other tools. Writing is the same way. It isn't enough to just have a story. You have to know how to write a story. Stories have structure. They have an underlying skeleton. There are things that happen that need to happen 
for you to be telling a story that will be understood as a story in the common parlance. We have been telling stories since we probably have been speaking. Yeah, in the beginning, they probably weren't very interesting, but they got better as we understood what people were looking for. They were looking for knowledge of what, matter of fact, stories were not just stories. They were information repositories. Stories were used to tell people how to find resources, what to do in certain types of weather, what to do when certain kinds of events took place, when the food came into town, when new food came into your hunting area or when new crops were being, uh, when new uh, berries and grubs and things were available. Stories were how we, reposit- we we stored that information and passed it on. It was called the oral tradition. So the oral tradition was how we learned to tell stories. And what we did later, we didn't just want to relay information. We wanted to make it interesting. So we learned to tell stories so that we could tell longer stories and embed more information into those stories. So eventually they went from being just short stories to information repositories passed down for generations. Today, we tell stories. The things that we're passing down are morals or ideas or viewpoints or perspectives. So stories aren't telling us how to find food anymore, but they are telling us how we should live in relationship to each other. That's what Aesop's fables, for example, were. They were morality tales teaching you uh, how not to give up, like with the, uh, the, the, uh, the fox and the grapes. Uh, how to treat each other. So these stories now embed morality and human interactions and ideas and perspectives. So we're still telling those stories. They're just much more complicated and they have a lot more going on. And they're now a form of entertainment that everybody can no longer do. Once upon a time, we all learned to tell these stories because that's how, you know, your life might depend on the information embedded in the story. But today your life doesn't, doesn't depend on it. And as a result, very few people still tell stories. Now we only have dedicated storytellers. But when dedicated storytellers became the thing, the one thing that disappeared was that people lost the ability to tell stories. They lost the underlying structure, the art of stories, the craft of stories. These things disappeared. So what we ended up doing is now having this very small select group of writers or creators who tell stories and everyone else just waits to be told. This is what TV is. TV is a whole bunch of people getting paid to tell stories, but even many times more people consuming those stories. The biggest thing that most young writers don't know is that there is a craft, there's an engine, there's a process. You can be highly creative and still be a terrible storyteller if you don't know how to structure your story. And this is the thing that I want to teach everybody because everybody should know how to do this. Because storytelling isn't unique to just telling stories. It's also a process to relay good information. If you're applying for a grant, do you know what you're really doing when you apply for a grant? You're telling the story of your organization, why you want company X to give you money, resources, power, whatever it is they're giving you. You have to tell a story that says, we are great. We saw this problem. We wanted to fix this problem. We had an idea. We got people together to work on that idea. The idea that we've built is good, but it's small. It's underpowered. It needs support. Here's how you could help us do that. The people that tell the most compelling stories get the grants. So storytelling is a superpower. It is a thing that when you know how to do it, the world becomes more accessible to you. And that's what I want to teach people. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. talking about storytelling and superpowers. The reason I asked you back on, aside from the fact that I just love having you on the show, because you always bring the goods, that is. On Facebook, uh, you posted a writing about, looks like they're going to do another Superman show. <laughs> Again. Again. It's, uh, it's going to be the Superman that's been appearing on Supergirl, and they're talking about the CW spinning that character off into his own show, Superman and Lois. That is what are what are your thoughts on this? You shared them already, but I I, I want to hear it from you. I am the Superman fan. There's a bigger, better Superman fan out there. I don't know him, but I love Superman. Superman was my hero when I was a kid. I would go out of my way to watch him on TV. He came on Saturday mornings. Uh, it was one of those little early series, 1966 to 1970, The New Adventures of Superman. And it opens up with, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman, the cartoon version of him. This was the spinoff from The Adventures of Superman, the TV series from 52 to 58. In that rewrite, they probably had, the, those are the two best versions of Superman before the 90s. Because George Reeves' Superman was one of the sharpest, best versions of the character. Superman was heroic and moral and idealistic and yet very human his clark kent wasn't the bumbling clark kent of the superman uh, movies it wasn't the christopher reeves he wasn't the christopher reeves superman where or clark kent where he was this bumbling guy that staggered around town tripping and falling over himself george reeves clark kent was a well-adjusted handsome intelligent individual who was challenged by his co-workers who were equally ambitious and he was working double duty because he was trying to write articles and be Superman. And, of course, that meant that Lois Lane would occasionally get a scoop on him. And she was a brilliant writer. So that was his struggle. But he didn't have to pretend to be so nebbish he couldn't be seen. He did a little nebbish stuff, but not a lot. He was a very different character. When we see him in 78, he's very different. I felt that it hurt him from the 52 to 58 and then from 66 to 70. Those are the, the two periods where Superman was very well depicted to go to 78 where we were strong on the super but light on the man i always felt that as a characterization it hurt him for many years after that 
because they were always big on this idea of promoting Superman at the cost of Clark Kent. And we don't see that change until the 90s when he gets a new series, Lois and Clark. There they emphasized Clark Kent and Superman was kind of like a guest star. He showed up only after Clark Kent and Lois usually got into trouble or something bad happened. So Superman became a guest star in his own series, which was okay. I didn't complain about Lois and Clark. It wasn't the best, but it certainly wasn't the worst. Now, I know you loved that Superboy series, The Adventures of Superboy from 88 to 92. Most people never even knew it existed. My feelings on that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Give me your feelings on that. The first season of Superboy, (laughs) I thought worked well when he was Clark Kent because John Newton, who played the character the first year, because he was only the first season. That's right. He didn't want to play the Christopher Reeves Clark Kent because the Christopher Reeves Clark Kent, he was the costume. He was the mask. Yes. Superman was the real guy. Clark Kent was how he got through the day. A disguise. Before then, it was Clark Kent was the guy and Superman was sort of the mask itself. That first season of Superboy, it was, you actually dealt with some stuff. And I remember specifically there was one thing where, and it was a little ahead of its time, and it's something that was even addressed in a different way in the Hulk movies, specifically the the Incredible Hulk with Liv Tyler and Edward Norton. You had Clark Kent, who's presented as a smart, handsome, charismatic guy, and he's dating someone. The girl's like sort of coming on to him, and it's like, do you want to stay? And he's like, no, I don't think so. And you realize he doesn't know if he can have sex with a mortal woman. Yes. He sort of storms off and he actually grabs, in frustration, he grabs a doorknob, rips it off, and crushes it in his hand because of his own frustration. I thought that was an interesting idea. It's like, okay, it's Superboy, so he's still figuring himself out. And also, what would a teenaged, early 20s Clark Kent be like? And he'd be frustrated trying to figure out how he works in the world. Now, the special effects were terrible. Oh. Don't get me started. They were bad. So bad. It was The show was cheap. And I sort of read up on the Superboy series as the show went on and as it had more success and they knew that it was going to be around for a little longer, they started putting more money into it. It was actually more interesting as Clark Kent. Now, the problem is the people, producers behind the scenes, didn't like that he wasn't being the, the nerdy Clark Kent. So they recast the role. And then the second season, all of a sudden, it was the bumbling, goofy Clark. And I was like, oh, well... When you do it that way, now granted the action was better and they started bringing in Mixelplex it and Lex Luthor more into the series. It looked better, but still all it is is sort of action scenes that are never going to be as good in a half hour syndicated TV show as they are going to be in a movie. So you're just watching sort of watered down Superman without the interesting Clark Kent aspect. Which is why I give it its low rating. There just was not enough love there. When I watch a series, I can tell you whether people are just phoning it in and when they're actually doing something they're proud of. When I watch the George Reeves Superman, which is one of my favorite versions of it, it is clear to me those people love their job. It was a silly job. And when you read behind the scenes stuff and they talk about how uh, they used to laugh that he would, George would, they would shoot at him with a gun and the bullets would bounce off him. But as soon as they threw the gun, Superman would duck. I bet you never re- never realized that. Oh, no. Uh, well, there was a comedian, Louis Grizzard, who talked about that. I was like, oh, my God, he did duck. Right. He ducks. And it's like, dude, you're Superman. The gun should be no more interesting than the bullets. But it was these little things that you kind of didn't really notice because you were so caught up in how George projected this calmness of a man 
who knew he could not be harmed. And when he ran through the walls, he would they would show the wall. And I know they had to do a bunch of singing and dancing to get it to work. But you could believe he was punching through that wall. And it was always so visceral. And I think that's what I liked about it. And I think that's why Superboy annoyed me because I figured, well, we've had 25 years. Surely we could get better special effects, right? But not really. They weren't doing a lot there. So for me, that's a low point in the Superman career. Now, to be fair, Lois and Clark was better. It was better written. It was better scripted. Characters were better. But I didn't love Superman then either. I think my love affair happened when Superman became Superman the Animated Series. Oh, the the Bruce Tim. Yeah, the Bruce Tim Superman the Animated Series, the spinoff from the Batman the Animated Series. This was the first time in a long time that we got to see Superman with some power, with some vulnerability, but with good writing and a much more diverse villain aspect. Very much the thing that I noticed in the regular versions when you do live action Superman, the challenges to make the special effects look good and believable are always there. But with the animation, as long as you have some decent animators and a decent script, you can appreciate it. So it was funny because when I watched the Superman the Animated Series, it brought me back in mind of the very early, I don't know how far back you go with Superman, but uh, there was a series when he was part of Fleischer Studios. Oh, those were brilliant. Those are so amazing. And when I tell people, yeah, this was 1940, they're like, get out of here. Oh, no, brother. That was 1940. It was amazing. The Fleischer Superman. I have that on DVD. No, I have it on uh, I have it on VHS. That's how long ago I had it. I bought it a long time ago, and I loved it. And I'm going to have to find it on DVD because it's one of those things that I know will eventually disappear, and you'll never be able to find it again. But the Fleischer Superman was beautifully drawn. It was lovingly crafted. It was a work of sheer passion. And if you watch those things, you wouldn't realize you're watching something written in 1940, except they're only 15 minutes long. And that's the big clue. Animation back then cost a grip, but they were so amazing. And I love them. And that's why they get a high rating for me. That's my nine out of 10, because those were just amazing pieces of work. And you didn't see that again, that kind of love until we got back to the animated series. Superman, the animated series rocks. It is my favorite modern Superman. It is. Great stories, great writing, great characterizations. The villains are evil and bombastic and over the top. And when we finally, that last couple the season finales, when he fights against Darkseid and reminds Darkseid just how powerful he really is, man, it, it ooh, gave me chills. I loved it. After seeing that Superman, I was going to have a hard time with everyone's favorite show, Smallville. You remember Smallville? Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, the Superman you never saw the Superman in. What do they call him? The Blur. Oh, kill me. I oh it, it was a case of a show that went on too damn long. Too long. Thank you. It went on too long. It didn't offer me Superman. It offered me everything but Superman. It gave me some lackluster guest appearances by other superheroes somewhere around what season five. But by then I had stopped caring. I just wanted it to end. And Tom Welling, I thought he was a good casting choice. Good-looking guy. Good-looking guy. Some charisma. Great Lex Luthor. Yes. Yes. Twist on that relationship. But then you you get five seasons in. Actors start dropping out of the show. They're losing the love. 
they're losing the love and and you could feel it it was i could feel the show changing and i was like oh this is going to end soon because people are bailing the actors have this look like yeah i'm just phoning this in i'm done i felt for them but at the same time i wanted it to end too it was just as well that it did and that last scene where he's running off the rooftop i'm like oh you didn't even give me what i was looking for just one time can i have just one good scene of my s and my superman and no you didn't give it to me okay fine whatever yeah me and smallville there was no love lost i know there are people who will tell you it's the best thing since sliced bread and nuclear weapons but i'm not one of them it was fine and i think it led to better stuff later oh it did it did because the same time it was on you know what else was still running the justice league and justice league unlimited and Superman was still in those. Did you ever watch either of those? Oh, yeah. And Justice League Unlimited had the best final episode of a cartoon ever. Ever. Justice League and Justice League Unlimited starring Superman, because let's face it, he was the star. Everybody else was just kind of hanging out. I loved it. I loved it. It's, again, one of those series that I think Superman looked really good in, and the writers didn't water him down. They changed the scale. So Superman could hang out with these guys. And these other guys could still contribute superpowered stuff to the events without Superman hogging all the light. Now, I admit that Superman does take a lot of hits in that series, but I always attribute it to the idea that you meet a new monster, you don't know what it is. Who do you send to fight that monster? The guy that doesn't get hurt. He goes in, he attacks the monster, the monster knocks him down, and the rest of the Justice League goes, ooh, well, this doesn't look good. Superman just got clowned. But what that tells them is, Brute force won't work, and Superman better continue to get up and take those hits for us while we find the real solution to this problem, because brute force isn't the answer. So Superman takes a beating in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, but you're willing to forgive it because the stories are so well written, I could forgive them almost any crime. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Why I don't want to see another Superman series isn't that Superman doesn't look good. Why I don't want to see it is because DC has failed to promote their DC entertainment universe, their movie universe and their TV universe. They did not integrate them well. In the movies, we have dark brooding Superman. You know the one, Man of Steel. He was dark. He was brooding. He was moody. He turned trucks upside down and turned them into origami. And it was not Superman. It was some guy wearing his costume. I'm sorry. The problem is you have dark brooding Superman. Okay, then what are you going to do when you bring Batman? He's going to be darker and broodier. Thank you. How do you how do you have dark brooding Superman and know that he's eventually going to meet Batman? So what? Batman's going to, what is he going to be like a, a one syllable superhero? He's just going to walk around and growl a lot. Who needs that? Nobody wants that. Superman's supposed to be light, and you're supposed to feel, Superman shows up, you feel hope. When Batman shows up, you feel fear. That's how it's supposed to be. 
If Superman shows up and everybody goes, ooh, I'm afraid, then you've done something wrong. And these guys did something wrong. I don't care how many people tell you Snyder was the greatest thing since sliced bread and nuclear weapons. He was wrong to make Superman what he turned him into. Dark brooding man was a mistake. Batman's supposed to be dark and brooding. Aquaman's supposed to be a little broody. Superman, that's not his role. That's not his job. His job is to give people hope. When all things are down, when things are looking grim, we, we don't know what to do. We know that Superman, he's going to be smiling, and he's going to have an answer, and he's going to put himself between you and a problem till you come up with a better one than he does. And that's what was supposed to happen, and that didn't happen. But it's so heartbreaking because they had an actor who can do that. Yes, he could. And he looked good. I, I'm not a fan of Cavill, but the man looked great. He looked like Superman. He gave me that aura of, like, Brandon Ruth. You remember him? He was, he was, he was Superman. He was the first new Superman in a movie uh, in, what, 2006, I think it was? Yeah, it's 2006. So when he appears, it had been super, it's Superman Returns, and we haven't seen Superman for a long time, not since that debacle in Superman 4 with uh, Solar Man. Solar Man, that's right. So let's just, we're not going to talk about that. That happened. It was bad. We're not going to talk about it. So Brandon Ruth appear, appears as Superman, Return, uh, Superman Returns, and he was handsome, but his Superman was... Well, he's just doing a Christopher Reeve impression. There was nothing new. Right, there was nothing new, but there was nothing that made me go, yes, I, I, I was happy, you know, don't get it twisted, I was happy to see Superman in the movie again. But at the same time, I don't think Brandon Ruth was happy to play Superman because he didn't have any of the mannerisms that led me to believe he was really embodying that role. He, he just wasn't embodying it. When the movie ends, I was happy for it to be ending. And that was a bad feeling for me. When I, when I go to a movie that has superheroes in it, when it ends, I want to feel like, oh, man, when's the next one? Right. You want to be excited for the sequel, especially when it's, it wasn't acting as an origin story, but it was definitely a, a reset. It was a reset. And we were just supposed to pretend that Christopher Reeves was still Superman and that this guy, uh, he had left and he'd come back traumatized for his experience. He was going to try and shoehorn his way back into his life. That's what we were supposed to believe. And that's what they were selling. And it just didn't fly. You know, it didn't fly because there was no sequel. It just didn't happen. Nobody felt like they should open up their pockets and do it again. I was like, okay, Brandon Ruth, you were okay. You weren't awesome. You weren't amazing. You were imitating a guy who did the job better than you, and that was a miss. And the story featured who? Lex Luthor. Really? Really? Doing the same stupid thing he's done in two or three other movies. Thank you. So as far as I was concerned, that was the, the, the death knell for that movie, was that Lex Luthor was the villain. If they had put any other more interesting or physically dynamic villain in there, we would have had a better, different movie. We just would have. We could have had two villains. We could have had Parasite, one villain for punching. Parasite's a great villain for punching and for making Superman think because you can't just run up and punch the Parasite in the face, can you? He sucks Superman's power away. So that would have given us the option to see a Superman who had to think, who had to problem solve, who had to figure something out. And then we pick another villain like Toy Man or one of these other weird guys who always has a plan and their weird plan involves distracting Superman while they're committing a robbery. That one-two punch, one human villain, one mega villain, that would have been perfect. Instead, what do we get? Lex Luthor, again. With more kryptonite and more real estate scams. 
Thank you. Make a real estate Superman in the real estate scandal. Really? Is that it? Oh, come on, guys. That movie deserved it deserved all of the derision that it received because it just shouldn't have happened. They were too conservative. It shows because we don't see another Superman movie till 2013 when Man of Steel shows up. What did you think of Man of Steel before I based it? It was too dark. It took too long. The first like half hour was a Russell Crowe action movie, and I, I didn't need that. <laughs> there was a handful of things that it did right. The whole thing of Lois Lane being this eagle-eyed reporter and not realizing Clark was Superman, I don't think you can do that anymore. So her figuring out that Clark was Superman real quick, I, I thought that worked fine. Amy Adams is a good actress, and I thought she was going to be great in the role, but the chemistry was off between her and Cavill. Mm-hmm. There was too much destruction. It was too dark. Superman was too broody. There was a, like little things here and there that worked. Even one little thing at, towards the end where Superman shows up and talks to the general and then flies off, and then the other soldier, the the young woman, sort of smiles a little bit because, well, she thinks Superman's hot. You know what? Yeah, he's a great-looking guy. And sort of addressing that, what would it be like to be in the presence of the most powerful person in the world who's also six foot three with broad chest and big arms? It's like, okay. Broad chest, deep blue eyes, physically a god in every way that mattered and probably a whole bunch of ways you want to find out. Yes, that was why it failed, because Superman did not inspire awe in the way he has up until this moment. Until Man of Steel, Superman was always an awesome presence for good. Nobody ever saw Superman and said, eek, unless you were doing something bad. If you were behaving badly, Superman was a threat to you. Other than that, Superman made you go, yes, Superman is here. We're saved. That was the viewpoint people tend to have. We're about to be safe. And instead, what we got was this scary thing who, in almost every way that mattered, never made anybody feel safe. And then the movie was worse than that because it didn't make anybody feel safe while you were watching it. While you're watching this movie, what you're seeing is literally the most powerful man in the world fighting people who are more powerful than he is. How do you feel safe when that's the case? It just looks like a video game where everyone's fighting each other in God mode. That's right. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets beat up. They just all smack each other around and destroy everything. And hundreds, if not thousands of people die, obviously. Thank you. Get it right. Thousands of people were killed. And I was blown away that somebody thought that this was a debut movie for Superman to appear in. You do not have a debut of Superman where his goal is to destroy. I'm going to tell you something. I wrote an article about that back then when it first happened. Have you ever read Miracle Man? Yes, yes, yes. Do you remember the story where Kid Miracle Man kills London? Yeah, just uh, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. He destroys London. He, he, he comes. He's been Miracle. He's been Kid Miracle Man for years. He has refused to return to his boy-like state, so we discover uh, at the very end that he's still a boy. He was being ab- physically abused, and he turned into Miracle Man, and he stayed that way, and he killed his abusers, and then just stayed, he stayed Miracle Man. He never turned back into a boy again. He goes off, he becomes a powerful CEO, and then one day, I don't know what triggers him, he just loses it, and decides he's going to kill everyone in London until Miracle Man shows up, because evidently he just decided Miracle Man had to die. 
Now, what we learn about this world is that Miracle Man's powers are inversely proportional to how long you've been Miracle Man. So the longer you've been in your Miracle Man form, the more powerful you are. So what we discover is Miracle Man is now weaker than Kid Miracle Man by orders of magnitude. Kid Miracle Man kicks everybody up and down the street. But before any hero showed up, he had a few hours to kill. So he killed everyone in London in imaginative and horrible ways. This is one of the most terrifying, sad commentaries on superheroes I'd ever seen. And yet it made perfectly good sense that if a being with the power of Superman, who did not have any moral fiber at all, were to run amok, this is the result. That scene came back to me when I looked at the scene of Metropolis being destroyed. And these guys were flying through buildings and destroying everything. And there's a scene where he is standing in the middle of the wreckage. And I'm thinking to myself, who thought this was a good idea? Who? Who thought that this was where we should start the new legacy of Superman in 2013? Who thought that was a good idea? No one could have thought that was a good idea except what? Zack Snyder. Evidently he did. And he convinced a whole bunch of executives to do it. This was a mistake of epic proportions. Because if you start your new universe off with the destruction of Metropolis, where do we go from here? Well, that's what struck me because they they were already talking about this leading to a Justice League movie. It's like they already blew up a a, a city. What happens next? And then when they actually did that uh, Justice League, it did feel like the stakes were weirdly lower than they had already been for Superman. Because instead of trying to rescue Metropolis, they were trying to rescue this sort of abandoned small country with nobody in it. It was like, yeah, they, they were they worked so backwards with the DC Extended Universe. Really, they should have started with Batman. Hell, they should have started with like the Flash or something. Start with a smaller character and work their way slowly up because that's what they did in, with Marvel. They started with Iron Man. Nobody gave a crap about Iron Man basically up until the day when they released the first Iron Man trailer with Robert Downey Jr. Nobody cared about Iron Man. And then they were able to build their way up and build interest until you got to uh, the first Avengers movie. And that was the first movie where it was really a world ending scenario. And you could build up the stakes. Right. And that was the problem I have with Man of Steel. It starts their universe with epic scale destruction and puts Superman in the position of having to handle not one, not two, but three Phantom Zone villains whose powers were similar to his own. Though he had a slight advantage, it wasn't much. On the one hand, it was good because it showed just how much damage and how much force it would take to harm Superman. But it was bad because it also meant that it was going to reveal the difference in power levels between Superman and everybody else in the Justice League. It is clear that if you look at the Justice League and you look at Superman after Man of Steel, the Justice League is like, they're like uh, accessories. They're fashion accessories to Superman. They just don't have anywhere near the raw crushing power that Superman brings to the battle. They just don't. And I feel bad about that. Well, they showed that in Justice League where he's fighting the entire Justice League. And at one point they're dogpiling on him and he doesn't care. They're all like grabbed onto him, and then he sees that the Flash is coming up, and he's like, "Oh, okay." And he just brushes away the rest of the team to like basically try to swat away the Flash, which also made Batman versus Superman so weak 
the writers had to completely bend over backwards to make it look like close to a fair fight to the point where Superman even says at the beginning, he's like, I could kill you right away if I wanted to, just to address the fact that, yeah, the only reason why Batman's in this fight is because this hyper overpowered Superman is letting him. Right. The whole failure is that we started their universe with Superman. That was, it was a mistake. And, and I feel like that's been part of the problem with Superman in general, is that when DC decided they were going to have an entertainment universe and they were going to try and challenge Marvel, they made a mistake. What Marvel did was Marvel had a plan. It was clear they had a plan. And their plan was going to be structured so that each time they added new things to their universe, they would up the scale a little more and up the scale a little more and up the scale a little more. So as you watch them build their universe, it's clear there is a systematic development. We know behind the scenes that it wasn't quite as systematic as we'd like to think. There were lots of times they were not certain what they were doing. But you know what they did better than DC was that they didn't depend on one person whose vision was not as good as the universe he was writing from. Kevin Feige, for whatever I can say about him, he knows his comics, and he knew what he wanted to have happen, and he knew how to build what he was looking for. When he wasn't certain, he would ask. It was clear Snyder. Snyder had an agenda. He was going to turn the DC universe dark. That was a mistake. Because unless there was a reason for that universe to be dark, it was in direct competition with their TV universe. Their TV universe was dark, but it was also filled with a whole bunch of mortals. The the most powerful person for a while there was the Flash. And then eventually when they got Supergirl, we learned early that she was not nearly as powerful as the movie version of Superman. So when they eventually introduced Superman, I groaned because I was like, okay, so. We have a movie version of Superman. Now we have a TV version of Superman. The two characters are completely different. Now we explain it away with what? Parallel universes. Matter of fact, that's what they're going to do on Crisis on Infinite Earths. We're going to see Peter Weller. No, not Peter Weller. Uh, Smallville's. Oh, Tom Welling. Tom Welling. Tom Welling. We're going to have Tom Welling show up as that universe's Superman. We're going to have Brandon Ruth show up as Kingdom Come Superman. And we're going to have Supergirl Superman show up as well. These three Superman are going to Superman are going to be in this universe. And that will be their, I guess, their way of introducing the idea that the Superman that we'll see from the Supergirl universe, which will spin off to become Superman and Lois, is a different person than the DCEU Superman. And the reason is because it, it depends on a parallel universe. Marvel didn't do that. Marvel's universe is one place. They all share the same place. They may not ever show up in each other's universes, but they will talk about each other. So that the Netflix Marvel heroes, the Netflix defenders, they mentioned the event. They mentioned the uh, attack on New York. We don't see it, but we've talked about it. So we know that that's sharing the same universe. We got to see Nick Fury show up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So we know that the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Nick Fury are contemporaries, which means they're all in the same universe. DC Universe didn't do that either. All of these people inhabit separate universes. The Flash lives in one. Flash and Arrow live in one. Supergirl lives in one. Black Lightning lives in one. And Jay Garrick lives in a separate one. So we have all these people living in separate universes. Now, granted, we did make the travel between universes possible. 
and relatively easy and relatively simple to use. You press a button, you can go where you want to go. But why not just build them all in the same universe? Save us the trouble of having to explain to people who do not know what a multiverse is, why there are three versions of Superman. There was so much working backwards. I know the creatives behind Black Lightning didn't really want him to be part of the Arrowverse. Correct. And then they sort of, I think, finally brought him around as like, hey, you're going to be your own universe, but we're going to give you enough of a MacGuffin to get you in to crosses every, every now and then. And you can share audience and that's fantastic. And what was it? Was Supergirl, I think the thing was originally that she was on, that show was on CBS. And then they brought her over to the CW. And then once it was on CW, then they sort of decided then we should have her part of it. It was haphazard. It was scattered. It was problematic in almost every way that mattered. There was no planning and there was no agreement. They were, I mean, because it's clear that Snyder's perspective was very different than the Arrowverse perspective. You know, the Arrowverse was relatively light, relatively fun. Granted, Green Arrow was kind of grim, but since there was no Batman, Green Arrow got to be Batman. And in his way, he is Batman. That kind of worked out okay, since there was no Batman. And who kn- and we know that nobody needs another Batman episode. Nobody. <sighs> nobody. We need a Batman even less than we need a Superman. So I was happy that we didn't have a Batman and that Green Arrow got to actually show up, though they were originally very much contemporary in their behaviors. You, you remember the days when there was the Arrow Bar, right? And the Arrow Cave? I know you do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know there was a time when Batman and Green Arrow were basically frenemies. You know, they had similar techniques, similar motivations, similar capabilities. And so they it made sense for them to, to be frenemies. They were too much alike. So much so that Green Arrow basically tried to copy Batman's everything. Nothing wrong with that. I thought it was really good. So the fact that we don't get a, that we didn't have a Batman was okay with me. I will not. I was not complaining, and I'm still not upset that I don't see Batman because he's also been overexposed. So I'm perfectly okay with him not showing up. That's my problem with uh, Superman. It's hard to do Superman now because they're taking a lot of his best plot lines and some of his villains gave him the Supergirl. So we have a problem with what stories are we going to use? But you know what? I actually decided the other day. Oh, and it was funny because Screen Rant had a moment where they were like, we're going to tell you that we think Superman's going to be in trouble because all of the best stories have already been given to Supergirl. And I said to myself, you know what? So how about you guys stop mining nostalgia? There's 80 years of Superman. If you can't find a way to take something out of 80 years of Superman and turn it into a cohesive and interesting plot, then you don't deserve the job. Because you know who could do it? I could do it. Because I'm a Superman fan. And I would create new stories that didn't depend on recycling old stories. That's why these series are suffering, because we keep recycling rather than telling new stories. And, and the costumes are Brainiac looks. You remember Brainiac? What's up with that, that coloration? What, what is that? I know you've seen it. I know you looked at him and go, you don't look anything like Brainiac 5. You don't look anything like Brainiac 5. What is this? It's like, how many different ways can you guys screw up? Superman's origins and stories, giving them to Supergirl. Now, you know why they gave him to Supergirl, right? Because Supergirl has no stories of her own. It was just an excuse to have a female, and they would do that all the time with Superman in the, in the Silver Age comics. It's like there'd be the super cat, the super dog, the super horse. So, of course, they had to have Super Supergirl. She, she had no stories. She had no significant villain. And so when they decided to put her on TV, I laughed because I said, 
All they can do is recycle Superman stuff because she doesn't have a, a rogues gallery. It was a running joke for some of my friends and I. We were talking about it's like, oh, they're going to make a Supergirl series. So uh, who are they going to have show up as villains? We sat down and thought about it. Like, okay, let's go read some of the Supergirl comics. Come to find out, she really doesn't have a rogues gallery. They were going to have to pretty much use m- many Superman stories, and they did. And so now they're asking, well, what do we do for Superman? The answer, write. Hire some writers, love the character, know the character, and maybe you want to get some consultants on the staff who can help you plot some good stories and plot some storylines, because depending on Superman raising his super son, that's pretty weak. You know how I know it's weak? Because they stopped doing it in the comic. You remember those stories. Just recently, Superboy was a 12-year-old. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had the, what was it, Connor Kent? Uh, No. No, no, not Connor Kent, no. Connor Kent was the clone Superman. Yeah, they've had his son, and they had even some issues where his son was hanging out with Batman's son, which is... No, I love that. No, those stories, the Super Sun stories, the modern Super Sun stories, because they were some ancient ones. But the modern Super Sons was a really well-done series. It pointed out the difference between Superman and Batman. It pointed out the difference in viewpoints between their sons and why their sons would think differently than them and would eventually become different heroes. I was completely okay with the Super Sons. No issues there. The failure was that DC's writers couldn't hold it together to let the boys grow up. They were in a rush to grow them up. They were in a rush to uh, include them in the Teen Titans. If they had just left them alone, let them grow, let them evolve at a reasonable pace with some good writing, they'd have been great. But instead, they rushed to grow them up. And Connor, or I mean, John went from 12 to 17 overnight. And they decided that we just couldn't be bothered with writing stories about 12-year-old Superboy. So we're going to turn them into, we're going to turn them into Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. And we're going to skip right over that. So we can't have them be 12 and be a member of the Legion of Superheroes. So we're going to make them 17 and that'll be the end of it. And just like that, he went from being a boy to being a man. And nobody even considered what this would do to the story or how the stories would be told. So if they couldn't manage to hold together in the comics, why should we suspect that they will do a better job with the series? Why should anyone? Because you guys didn't even want to, you know, DC as a whole didn't even want to pursue it with the Super Sun storyline, which was well done. It was one of the better series I've read in the modern era. If they can't do that, what can this series do that that one didn't? Not a lot. And there are good stories in there. Don't don't get it twisted. I I will find them for you. I will give you a a reading list and, and, and let you know that Superman and his son, John, they were good. There were good overlapping stories about the two. Uh, there's one scene where Superman and John were arguing about why does John, why does why do you like Batman? And he says most of the time he makes me really very angry, and that kind of makes sense that Batman would anger Superman because Batman doesn't believe in you know he doesn't believe in transparency. He believes that his view is the one that matters most. His ideas matter more, and thus. He doesn't tell anybody about his plans until after they're done. And that irritates Superman a lot. Because Superman is the ultimate guy that believes in transparency, that we should be upfront, we should be forward, we should be open, because people trust us if we are open. Batman says, I don't care about their trust, I care about getting the results. So John says, well, why do you like him then? He says, because in all the ways that matter, yes, he irritates me. Yes, I, would, I could pop his head off like a zit. But when all is said and done, 
I consider him like my brother. And who doesn't want to pop their brother's head off? To tie it all back, that's the problem with this Pose CW Superman show. We've we've seen it so many times. The mistakes have been made. I have no confidence that CW, with the budget that that show is going to have and what it's competing with, is going to tread any new ground or be anything interesting. I mean, they're even calling it Superman and Lois. I mean, that's basically Lois and Clark. Lois and Clark. There you go. See, you're feeling me now, aren't you? Oh, hey, I've, I've believed it. It's painful because I know that I feel like right now superheroes are at a they're at a cusp. They're at a delicate place. What they need now, if they're going to continue to tell Superman story or tell superhero stories, is they need a plan. They need a structure, making them better, not just kind of throwing something stuff up at the wall and hoping it'll stick. Let's say the last two seasons of Arrow have been less than ideal, and the fact that Arrow is ending is a good thing because it had gotten to the point where it was losing steam and it was clear that everybody knew it. Too many actors dropping out of the show. They lost Felicity. She was the heart of that show. That's right. They were making mistakes again and again. Subtle mistakes, but they were mistakes. And the heart of the show was disappearing. If they had wanted to impress me with this, where they should have gone was to go ahead and, and green light, pardon the pun, a green arrow and green lantern series. That would have given, uh, if they had given Diggle the green lantern ring, and let the two of them work together as Green Lantern and Green Arrow, that would have been a great way to segue from Green Arrow to just doing a Green Lantern series and letting Arrow retire and guest star the same way Diggle hung around for years trying to find a place in Green Arrow's uh, superhero existence. They didn't do that. So we're still not showing a plan. We're not showing a rhythm that says we have a plan, we have an idea, and that we are working with a knowledgeable approach to problem solving. It still looks like we're just kind of wandering back and forth. And who wastes the Martian Manhunter? That's my biggest complaint about Supergirl. The Martian Manhunter doesn't do anything. How do you have him in your storylines and he does nothing? So much untapped potential with that character. And they use him not at all. That's why I said we don't need another Superman because we are squandering the resources that we already have. I feel like Green Arrow is ending and it is good. Uh, Batwoman is starting. I don't know how I feel about it. I watched the first season now and while I don't love it, I don't hate it. I'm indifferent to it. My, My old professor used to tell me apathy is the death of writing. If people are indifferent to what you write, you have failed. Let them love it. Let them hate it. Don't let them be indifferent to it. Gotham is a perfect example. I hated Gotham, but there were a whole bunch of people that loved it. And so therefore, it stayed on the air. They understood the idea that let people love it or hate it, but if they're indifferent, it will walk, not be bothered. I feel like Batwoman is right now just a little bland. I'm hoping the second season will pick up, hoping some new villains will show up. Yeah, you hope that the first season is them just sort of setting the status quo and the second season will be them playing. Will them actually be doing something, playing, experimenting, giving her her own rogues gallery, something new, something different, or even taking the story in a different direction. Just anything more than just saying, Batman's not here. That got old quickly. We've watched Supergirl do what she does all this time. We've accepted the blue heat vision. 
Don't say you didn't think about it. I thought about it. It's, okay. Yeah. So, so we've accepted the blue heat vision. We've accepted her not telling anybody that she's super girl. How stupid are people that they cannot tell that this girl's face is Supergirl's face? It's the little things that annoy me that ultimately tell me that unless they start trying to be a little little better behaved, a little more structured, that they're basically going to shoot themselves in the Now, to be fair, DC has done some things well. They're Teen Titans, though I do not like them. They are well-written. People love them. and People are talking about them, and they've got a third season, so they're doing something right. I don't always love them, but they're doing something right. Doom Patrol? Doom Patrol was a surprise by orders of magnitude, because aside from their propensity for saying other than that, it's been a great run. I really, really liked it, and I did not expect to. Now, I'm a Doom Patrol person. I love the Doom Patrol. I've been following their comic my whole life. They were my first weird, odd superheroes. I got no issue with them to grind. The story was good. The characters were good. Again, they were a little vulgar. But other than that, now granted, they used a lot of Morrison's run, and that was great, uh, which was weird and, and had a lot of strange stuff. And they did take a, stuff, a lot of stuff right out of the comic, so that was good. But they did try to do something new with it, and I liked that. I liked that they were willing to experiment and try to write something that was not quite as derivative. So DC has done some good things. But I suspect that those the things that were done that were done well because the people behind them have an idea of what they want to do and they've made an effort to define those parameters and then make it work. They don't have a lot of people telling them not to do that. I feel like there's been a lot of executive interference. That's why the movies were so terrible, because of that directive and interference. So I want DC to be successful and in their way. Their, their TV shows are much more successful than their movie. They're, they're definitely more creative, creatively satisfying. There's a better tone for it. And the movies are catching up and trying to correct. Yeah, but can they really? Because the Justice League, I don't know about you, but it, I was unmoved. I was uninspired. And then with Mustache Gate, it just, it was exasperating. I'm much happier with their televisions than I have been with their movies. Their TV stuff has been, it's been wonderful. I, I've enjoyed it. And though I wasn't always happy, like I loved The Flash in the first three seasons. After that, it started getting a little dull. First season of Black Lightning, really liked. Second season, I was really liking. Third season was off. And I can't put my finger on it, so I just watch it and I figure it'll come to me. I'll, I'll know what it is and be able to describe it when I, when I figure it out. I just haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Superman, I love him. I just don't think we need any more. Thaddeus, as always, this is awesome. And I know you're going to write more about Superman. I know we're going to, we'll talk, when this comes out, we're going to have you back and talk about the show. And hopefully it'll be better than we are, we fear it is. Well, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to, I want to come back after Crisis on Infinite Earth. Because I have a feeling that that's going to be the the background for much of what's going to take place for Superman and Lois. I have a feeling that's going to spin off into a whole new world. I, I don't think Superman's going to stay on Supergirl's Earth. When all is said and done, I think he's going to end up on his own. 
and he'll be separate from Supergirl. They won't have any overlap except whenever they have crossovers. Yeah, it has to be something really big. Well, that's what Crisis is. Crisis was really big. It was the the biggest event in the DC universe ever. I think that they're going to use that as a moment to let us see how big the multiverse is and then let us spin off so that Lois and Superman become their own separate world and there will be no more overlapping thing, which will give Superman some space. It'll give Supergirl some space. I think it'll work better that way. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a problem when the two of them are on the same planet and yet we only see one every blue moon. So we'll see. I, I, you know, After Crisis, we'll have had three Superman. We'll get to see three different versions of the character and we'll have a chance to experience what is hopefully going to be uh, the kind of writing that we want to see with Superman. So we'll get three chances to see it. Let it be good. Please, God, let it be good. I can have a little comfort and sleep at night And if it's going to be bad, then I'll know that because crisis will be bad and we'll know to not have any hope. Don't be average. Don't make us sit around for a season to realize that there's nothing there. Go big or go home. And DC right now, they need to go big or go home. And I think that's really what it's going to take for them to really make Superman and Lois work. They're going to have to take big risks. They're going to have to hire writers who are competent, who are bold, who are not just going to try and recycle the comic. Because if they take that route, that show is dead. They need a good running start for this. That's right. So let us be. Let us hope that Crisis is going to be that good running start. Because if it isn't, we'll know after. I'm, I'm pretty certain Crisis, everything we need to know about that story and where it's going to go. My God, if I see Lex Luthor one more time, Ugh. I don't need to see him for an entire season. He can show up. He can be, a, he can be an annoying businessman. He can brag about his company. But I don't want to see Lex Luthor, the supervillain. I want to see anything. And everything but Lex Luthor. I don't care if you give me a villain of the uh, color, the villain of the week. If that's all we're getting, I'll take it. They don't have to be big. They just have to not be Lex Luthor. Can I get a witness? Yeah. Uh, uh, amen. Amen. That's all I ask. They don't have to be great. Just don't let it be Lex. Superman has two hundred villains he can choose from, and the Justice League has half a dozen more he can, that he can lay claim to. So please, no Luthor. And God, no, no, no Luther as a hero. That that drove oh. me crazy. So I definitely don't want to see that because we don't buy it. I don't. Yeah, I never buy it. No one ever does. And Luther never disappoints. He's always a villain, even when he's pretending to be a hero. So let's skip that. Let's just skip over that. Luther is irredeemable. He is not a good man. He is not good. He has no good character. And we're all better off just accepting that he's a. Even if he's a complicated villain, he's still a villain. Let him just stay that way. Every time I saw him in a Superman uh, Superman S on his chest, it made me throw up in the back of my mouth. <laughs> never liked it. It never sat well with me. And when he finally took it off, I was happiest. Let us go ahead and hope that that never happens. So thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I love coming here and talking to you because I know you have the same kind of passion I do. That is, you're, you're always welcome here. We're going to have you back after crisis. And we're going to talk about all this. Maybe we'll get maybe we'll get Jar for someone else to join too. Yeah, you can do that. I'm I'm, I'm up for that. I can handle that. I know everyone always loves when you're on. Uh, where can people find more of the Answer Man? Well, I'm always on Krypton Radio. That's where I work. So whenever I'm writing articles or talking about superheroes, generally that's where most of my writing shows up. So you go to Krypton Radio, you can find me there. Uh, I write on Facebook all the time. So if you're just you, if Krypton Radio isn't enough, because I only write maybe one article a week or two articles a week, but if that's not enough, you can always come to Facebook. I'm always writing there. Things that I write there 
wide and diverse. So I write about superheroes. I write about Warhammer 40K. That's what I'm working on right now, my Warhammer 40K profile. I want to write for the Black Library next year. And the only way I'm going to get to write for the Black Library is to be able to live in that universe. So I said for a year, I'm going to write 50 stories that are going to show up in that universe. So the next time they have a contest, they will know me. They will know my work and they will give me a job. So if you love Warhammer 50, uh, 40K, come see me. I'm going to be writing it. It's going to be great. My goal is to be writing for Black Library this time next year because they have a contest every year around this time. The next time we have that contest, there'll be no, oh, well, thank you for, for applying and here's your, your letter that you didn't make it. Now they'll be only saying, here, come write for us. Make us great. That's what I want. That's the mission. So that's where you'll find me. I also work for the Good Men Project. I write and talk about climate change. Uh, Brad came to one of my climate change events last week. It was great. It was great. So if you're interested in climate change, you can find me on the Good Men Project, writing on, writing about climate change and talking about it, recognizing that we're going to have to save ourselves because there are no superheroes here. That wraps this episode of the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Big thanks to Thaddeus House. The Answer Men built quite a fan base amongst our listeners, and we look forward to having him back. Also, big thanks to Eric and Molly. They are doing a great job over at Escape from New York Minute. The show is getting close to wrapping, so you should download all of the episodes and listen to them during your Thanksgiving drive. Upcoming to the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, there was a little delay getting Jarf back but his return to talk about fixing the Terminator franchise will be here soon. Till then, stay marvelous. Subscribe to the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever quality podcasts can be found. Rate and review us while there. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic G-Pod and we will follow you back. Unless you're a jerk, we don't follow jerks. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cosmic Geppetto. We love hearing your ideas for upcoming episodes. Email us at Cosmic Geppetto at Comcast.net. Mark my words, pet. She'll expose you when she snows you. Hop your feet with the crumbs she throws you. She's ferocious and she knows just what it takes to make it pro blush. All the boys think she's a spy. She's got petty Davis
you 